fearless, a very nice, cultured gentleman. <laughs> you know, it's very polite, by the way. Put him on a football pitch and they'll run through you. A student of the game from an early age, this week's guest learned his trade in junior football before making rapid progress at Rugby Park. For episode 9 of the Killy Histories Big Match series, Ross Mathey talks in detail about the game he loves, giving both a player's and coach's perspective. We start at Fir Park in February 1970. The Scottish Cup quarter-final draw has given the Kilmarnock striker a short commute to work, with the game against his boyhood team a mere Mathey header away from his home. I'm Gordon Gillen. And this is Ross Matthews' Big Match. chosen from many league matches, cup matches, European victories, but for your big match you've chosen the Scottish Cup quarter-final of 1970. Can I ask why is that game particularly special to you please? I was obviously born and bred in Motherwell, brought up a Motherwell supporter. I didn't stay that far from, from the ground and uh, my dad used to take me there with, his, with my uncles and, and his friends. And uh, I was brought up during the, the great days of the Ansel Babes. My hero was Ian St John, and they had a wonderful team. The only thing was they only won the Summer Cup. They didn't win the League or the Scottish Cup or the League Cup or anything like that. But they won a, a lot of respect from the football public by the manner in which they played the game. So to go to Fir Park, I was still staying with my mum and dad at the time. And uh, I remember very, very clearly that morning when I woke up. It was heavy rain and it had been raining for 24 hours and I went out and walked around the uh, scheme just as I would normally do in, in match day and there was people hanging out the windows saying, yeah, you'll lose today, blah, blah, blah. Um, so when I went up to the uh, to, to the game and obviously the way it went uh, and we won um, and of course I was delighted but right after the game, my immediate opponent, Willie McCallum, who played with Motherwell and myself, Prior to the game, we'd been asked to go to a boys' club in Wishaw after the game to present some prizes. And because that was local, I said, that's fine. So after the game, I didn't experience a lot of um, the enjoyment because I, I went straight up with Willie. We did the presentation. I got home about maybe half past eight and I came into the house <laughs> and I thought my mum might say something. That's great. And she says, you're a disgrace. <laughs> I says, what? What have I done? Why did you score against Mallow? And I says, no, man, that's my team, I played. So look at your father. I looked around, my dad was legless, because he'd, he'd taken a lot of bets, which I didn't know, uh, at his work, and he won them. And of course, he went to the pub on the way home, <laughs> and he was, he was absolutely legless. So I get the blame from the state my dad was in, because I'd scored that goal. But not only that, I was in the boys' brigade at Mallow at the time, uh, and a lot of the company members were there, and they were very good friends of mine. In fact, one of them never spoke to me for about 40 years. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 I don't wanted to play for Mallow. I did get the opportunity to have a trial and actually play for them. I never signed, but it was great to be there and score uh, a goal uh, at the ground. And the fact that it got us into the, uh, the semi-final. But it's one that I remember with fondness. Uh, and it's one that many, many people, in fact, just recently, um, uh, I, uh, I'm involved with a walking football group and they've got a WhatsApp and it's, it was 50 years ago that that game was played, just recently, and s someone had said about it. And then, of course, the, the whole people that were on the uh, WhatsApp said, yeah, I remember being at school, primary school. <laughs> now, there must have been eight or nine <laughs> I'm at primary school and we were doing the mathy. They called it the Matthew Heater because they were in the playground practicing this diving header. And of course, I'm getting blamed for all the skint knees because <laughs> we were doing it in the Tarn Academy. But uh, there are many, many people, you know, who have been at that game over the years have been very, very kind and said, oh, I was there, it was great, thanks very much. It was a, it was a great experience. It was a great experience for me as well, being a local boy and, and, and scoring against my local team because Mother was always a team I looked uh, 
for their result on a Saturday, uh, even though I was playing with Kilmarnock always. Uh, and if I wasn't involved with Kilmarnock, we didn't have a game, and mother one was playing, I would go on the terrace and, uh, and, and stand with my pals uh, uh, on the terrace. You'd have recognised, but did you get any, any comments when you were on the terracing? One of the stories in particular, um, the morning after the match, I was at the BB Bible class in Morrow, and uh, later on I was walking down the road and uh, near my mum and dad's house, and there was this wee group of boys playing uh, football, and the ball was kicked towards the pavement I was on, and I stopped it with the sole of my foot to stop it going on to the road, and this wee lad came running over, and he bent down, and he put his hands in the hole, and he looked up to me, and he said, Murderer! <laughs> and then went away to play football. So, you know, there's many, many times like that, and there was a particular gentleman that uh, was a BD officer at the time. I think it was about 40 years before he actually spoke to me. <laughs> or, or maybe not spoke to me, but forgave me <laughs> for scoring. <laughs> but it, it was all good humour, and uh, as, as, as I say, it was, it was nice. And uh, to be fair to most of the people involved, they were very, very supportive of me all during my, my football career because um, I, I was in the boys' brigade at Mullow and I was a BB officer, so uh, I, I was fairly well known in, in, in the town. Maybe not so much for my football ability, mm. but for, for other things. And uh, uh, But it's nice sometimes. Uh, in later years, and I'm sure if you speak to any ex-professional player, if people come to functions, they say, I was there that day, remember you did so-and-so. Nostalgia is one of the most wonderful medicines ever. Motherwell gave you a bit of a hard time, particularly in the first half of the of the quarter-final. To be fair, it probably could have ended up a draw and maybe get a replay out of it because the conditions were terrible. You couldn't play football because it was, as I say, 24 hours before, it was heavy rain and it was muddy and there was puddles in the pitch and you, you, you couldn't really play a footballing game passing the ball. It had to come off the ground a wee bit and it was interesting that the goal was scored from a free kick because... I doubt very much whether we could have, any team could have scored a goal that was sweet, flowing moves and then a strike at the goal. It just had to be happened to We got a free, uh, a free kick and Tommy uh, played it in and I got on the end of it. Uh, but just before that, because uh, Tommy always says to me, I got him out of right hole because just about 10 minutes before that, uh, there was a uh, I think it was, it was a free kick or a corner that came in and Tommy's at the far post. He's actually standing at the far post holding on to the far post and the ball bounced and it had a terrible spin on it and he played it and it hit his shin and went over the bar. How he put it over the bar, we haven't a clue. And of course, it was nil-nil at that time and he, he said that to me at the end of the game, I'm grateful to you, by the way. He says, I would have got some pelters. He says, if we'd lost that game and I'd missed that chance. <laughs> to be fair to my they, they, they did come back at us and uh, Sandy McLaughlin had some good saves but uh, you know when you when you have people like Frank Beatty and, and, and Jack McGrory and Andy King as, as three of the four defenders Billy Dixon was at our left back and Billy was more of a, a going forward full back but these other three defensively along with Sandy are brilliant mm-hmm. you know they, they dug in and put their body in, in the line and got the result because there was long spells especially after I'd scored there was long spells in the game that I was <laughs> I was a spectator up the other end of the pitch because <laughs> the ball was always down uh, in and around our, our box um, and I think what helped us was that there was a crowd breaking mm-hmm. uh, the crowd came onto the pitch the game was stopped for five or six minutes and I'm sure to this day that that did help us not that I think the supporters thought we'll go on the pitch stop the game and then that'll take the fire out of them although I think it was just the way it happened the commander supporters spilled onto the pitch the game was stopped for five or six minutes as I say at the end of the day when you look back in history it was Mullow nil commander one and then we got the result um, and it, it, it was great after the game as I say when I went, I went down the road there were still people in the pubs uh, a lot of the Kamana po- uh, supporters and uh, away supporters in those days and Motherwell used to go to the local pubs on the way down to the station because a lot of the travelling support away support always used to come in trains uh, there wasn't the, the, the supporters buses in those days it was the special trains that, that went particularly for Motherwell because I remember going watching Motherwell in the 50, 58, 59 travelling up to Dundee and it went by train it left from Motherwell and the next stop was Dundee 
even if it came down to Kilmarnock, it was Muddle, next stop was Kilmarnock. And it was these uh, special trains, which, which was great because they had the corridor. And, uh, you know, people would be going along and they'd be singing their songs and everything. But, um, as I say, you've got, me, you, you've got me on this nostalgia trip now, by the way. <laughs> great. <laughs> Terrific. It's something, Ross, that... Um... The first series of the podcast has had a lot of positive feedback, specifically in relation to, well, partly, of course, um, for having such good guests, but also partly there are a lot a lot of the listeners are saying, yep, I was at that game, I remember it, and it's really nice to be able to hear the player or players who were involved in the game reflecting on it, because I think it's adding that little bit of extra, I think, specialness, you know, to be yeah. able to hear the players talking about it, to hear how much it meant to the players as well as to the fans. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, there, there are times now that there are people who were at that game who maybe physically can't go to games anymore, but they still can relive those games, you know, 40, 50 years ago mm. and say, I was there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Great. Did you ever speak to your dad, you know, after he, after he sobered up? Had he been putting the bet on you scoring, on Kilmarnock winning? I think it, it was to do with the winning rather than me scoring. I mean, I did speak to him after and I said to him, Dad, you know, I could have crossed your thoughts. And he says, ah, but you won the game. I says, but <laughs> I didn't realise to the extent of, of how many bets he took because it was a big engineering factory that uh, that I worked in before I went full-time with Kamana. And my dad worked there as well. He worked in the, the storeroom to, for the welders to, to hand out their equipment and so on and so forth. So every time something, someone came to his area and said, you know, we, we need this, that, and the next thing, and I bet he will beat Kamana next Saturday and of course he got to the stage he was just taking, <laughs> <laughs> taking bets now to be fair to him he, he was not a betting man he, mm. he didn't bet at all but I, I think he was getting to the stage that you know people were you know saying things ah, we, we'll do you blah 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 mm. and I think it, it got to him a wee bit he obviously had the the last laugh by, by being able to go in on Monday morning and not say a word and people were coming to him and saying there you are there's your money <laughs> but he, he was a Motherwell fan though yes one of the things that as we, we used to stay in Hereford Park and his brothers and my mother's brothers always used to meet we used to go and in those days I've told this story before about the family barrier. The cross barrier was a family barrier for us. And there was no uh, segregation between away's support and home support. And some days, uh, for example, if it was Commander that came and uh, one or two people came in and they stood at the barrier and my dad and my uncles and that would come in and say, excuse me, that's your family barrier. And they would go, oh, sorry, sorry. And they would move. <laughs> because in those days in the 50s, late 50s, um, up to about the early 60s, that's what they did. That was a family barrier. And Everybody, if you didn't go up there as a group, when you got into the ground, you stood at the barrier and everybody, everybody collected the, the barrier. And I, as a wee boy, I sat up the, the barrier and my dad would hold me and same with all the other parents. Um, but it was, uh, he, he was a model supporter. And then when, uh, obviously when um, I had gone junior, he came to games at Canvas Lang. And then when I signed for Kamana, when I was travelling down, he would come with me. It was sometimes away matches that he couldn't manage if, uh, because I was going in the team bus mm. but and, and he didn't drive. But he, he was always at the home matches when I get transferred to Dumbarton. To be fair, he came to the games at Dumbarton. And then further on in my career, he... He just would go back up to, to Motherwell again. I mean, he, he always had this affinity, as I've still got an affinity with Motherwell. There's some YouTube footage of Willie Hunter and Pat Quinn. They were idols in, in my day. That was the Ansel Babes. And as, as, I suppose I've still got that affinity with Motherwell. And uh, m- my dad had as well, you know. I mean, when I was in the, uh, working at the SFA, a number of my colleagues um, who stayed in Lanarkshire, Motherwell particularly, who were Motherwell supporters, and when we played Kilmarnock, and I would go to the games and the Abbott being one side and we'd be sending text messages back and forth. Yeah, you know, the Blue and White Army, Steve Clark's Blue and White Army is uh, on the march up to Muddle today, you know, this kind of thing. And I mean, I think it's great in, in football that it works really well f- for community clubs. They do an awful lot of good work, but also for friends and working colleagues. You have this little bit of banter and it's not by any manner of means, you know, you're sticking a knife in it anyway. You would be sending a text message and saying, hey, we're on our maps today, you know, with Stevie Clark's army. You'll be listening to Paper Roses today, that type of thing. And they would come back with things. And I think that's great because, and even at the end of the game, if I've lost, I would text them and say, well done. The one thing that's great about it is football banter's unique, absolutely unique. 
even when you go and play, whether it's just a, a kickabout at five a stage with your pals, it doesn't matter what age it is or whether you're playing professional, see the dressing room humour. It's so unique to football and that's one of the things that I did miss when I stopped playing. And I've got it back a wee bit when I play walking football with the, the guys that I play with and also with the small-sided games I play with the guys up at the SFA offices and on Wednesday I, I still go up there and play at lunchtime and it's great. And it's one of these things that gives you that wee bounce about football. The problem you've got when you're still playing at that age level is you're trying to do something you couldn't do 50 years ago. You're trying to do it now. You know? <laughs> do you still give the ball a right good header when it comes towards you? It's never up that high enough because if the guys I play with have the strength to get it up there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, it's enjoyable just the same. The quarterfinal moving into the semi-final. When you scored that goal in the quarterfinal, when the whistle goes, at that stage, just for a bit of context, were you aware of where the semi-final was going to be played? No, no, I, I, not at that stage. Uh, I think it, it was decided when the draw was made. When that draw was made, then it became, we're in a semi-final, or at Hamden. The, the thing that gave me the wee lift was semi-final. I'm back at Hamden after being, you know, at the beginning of the season and, and previous uh, summer, I was at the final with Canvas Line Rangers playing in the Junior Cup final when they played at Hamden. And I'm thinking, this is me at a senior club going to play at Hamden. I'd got there by playing junior. But the next accolade, I think, is every senior player in Scotland wanted to play at Hamden. Now, whether they were good enough to play with Scotland at Hamden or whether they got through to a, a cup semi-final or even a cup final, it was going to be played at National Stadium. And everybody, even as a wee boy, you know, going to some of these uh, Real Madrid track European Cup final in 1966, going and seeing Ian St John making his debut against Germany at Hamden. And there was uh, Andy Weir from Motherwell and Bert McCann from Motherwell. You know, seeing my local club players playing in the, for Scotland at Hamden and as a, as a youngster I'm saying I, I would love to play here one day and I got that opportunity at Canvas Line and then the second year I'm thinking oh senior semi-final and then the draw came out and then in their wisdom the SFA decided that they would play that at, at Mewton Park now that was a disappointment I must I must say when we when we arrived up that day, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of cars and buses going from Ayrshire up there. And when we played the game, it was absolutely chock-a-block with, with people that were climbing up the third light pilings and, and so on and so forth. Massive crowd. We probably had a couple of chances. I had a chance and Eddie Morrison had a chance. It just didn't run for us that day. Uh, and Derek Mackay, he scored, he scored the only goal. To, to lose 1-0 was a massive disappointment. Allied to the massive disappointment of not playing the semi-final at Hamden. I think it would have been easier to take if we had lost a semi-final at Hamden because what we would have been able to do, there would have been far, far more Kilmarnock supporters at Hamden than there would have been at Murton because it would have been easier for them to get there. That may have helped us, I, I don't know. But uh, that was the biggest disappointment, not playing the semi-final. <laughs> I'm sorry, the biggest disappointment was losing the game. And the fact that Aberdeen <laughs> went into the final with Celtic and beat Celtic. Of course, you're, you're looking at the game and you're reading the reports and you're saying, if only, it could have been us, you know. And that was it. That, that's probably one of the biggest disappointments uh, I've had in football. It was really, really hard to take because I hardly spoke in the house for three or four days, you know, um, and not saying a word. And, you know, my mum saying to me, come on, get yourself... In, that's past, you need to think to the future. But it was hard to take. But as I say, you can't guarantee anything in football. Uh, no, the only one thing I can guarantee in football, disappointment. You can always guarantee that that'll happen some stage in your career, uh, whether it's a player or whether, whether it's a club. And that happened on that day. But as I say, that's part of, part of the history of the club now. I'm wondering also, Ross, about maybe the expectation that, that you and the team had in that 69-70 season. It was a strong league Finish, strong league position, good run in Europe, good run in the Cup. Even though it was a good Aberdeen team, you would have maybe fancied your chances in that semi-final. Yeah, it was one of these things going to the semi-final. I, I thought it was kind of like eeksy-peeksy. I, I, I think we were of the opinion, and I'm sure Aberdeen were the same at that time, that we didn't get Celtic in the semi-final. Because if it had been Celtic in the way that Celtic were in those days, um, it would have been a difficult game for us. But I think we both felt... We're in with a wee chance here. 
Now, if we'd got Dundee, we probably said we were in with a wee chance because you missed out playing against Celtic. And I'm sure both teams went there with that in mind. We have a saying, we have a wee chance here of getting to the final because it's Kilmarnock or because it's Aberdeen. And on the day, they get the chance. It was a mistake and they scored from it. And we had a couple of chances. They just didn't get on target or Bobby Clark saved them. And at the end of the day, they came out one and one nothing, and uh, as I say, it was a, a massive disappointment. One of the guys that I was, uh, the guys that I was really disappointed. I was disappointed for myself, but I, I felt sorry for Jim McLean and uh, Frank Beatty and Jackie McGrory. These guys were, you know, at the tail end of their career, and, and I was only at the beginning of my professional career. I mean, I had another umpteen years that I suppose I could play senior football, but they were at that tail end, and here was this opportunity of possibly uh, going out. At the end of the season, uh, having played in a cup final and maybe even win a cup final for them. The players you've named there, Kilmarnock, greats, but it was an it was an equally strong Aberdeen team, wasn't it? This was a tough Aberdeen team to play. Oh, it was. I mean, and not only that, they had a very very shrewd manager, Eddie Turnbull. Eddie was uh, one of these managers who was tactically aware. A lot of the managers in the earlier days were the ones who just made sure that you were fit enough and come in and said a few things. And mainly the tactical stuff was done with the senior players on the pitch. Your time in junior football and your time with Canvas Line Rangers, how do you feel that that moulded your development as a player? Yeah, I, I think it did because in my earlier career I was playing with the, the works team that I worked in Motherwell Bridgewood and I got the opportunity uh, to go to a trial in Aberdeen I was 16 or 17 and I, I went up to Aberdeen for a week and at the end of the week uh, Tommy Pearson was the manager he signed I signed a, provis- uh, a provisional probationary form so I went back and played with my amateur team and then I got picked to play with Scotland amateurs at that age level and then I got a letter in saying I'm sorry we can't select you I says, why is that? Because you've signed a senior forum. And I says, but it's a probationary. And that barred me from playing with the amateurs at the international level, but it also barred me from going to junior football. Because Carlos Lang had come along and wanted to sign me, they all the papers and everything, and then discovered I couldn't. So, and it was two years later, there was an amnesty in the juniors, and uh, anybody who had that probationary form and was banned from the juniors, it was lifted for one season. And Carlos Lang, the day that it was lifted, they were at my house the next day and they asked me to sign. So I says, oh, fine, yeah, no problem. So it was David McClaglin and he, he was a great junior man, knowledgeable about players and everything. But he had an assistant who was the player coach, George McKenzie. And George had come back from South Africa. And again, like Jim McLean, he was a good fitness trainer, but also he was very tactically aware. And that was really the first time that I had come across tactics in a game when um, I, I signed with Canvas Lang. But the interesting thing... I hadn't signed at the time, but I, I went to play a game and we were playing the local Bland Clare Celtic in a pre-season friendly and played the game. Before the game started, George McKenzie came in. It's the first time I'd met him. So he, he came in and the referee came in and says, now, good game, lads. Remember, it's a pre-season friendly, nice and easy, casual. Don't have anything too bad today. Let's just go on and enjoy the game. And he shut the door. <laughs> George McKenzie got up. He says, hang with the referee, we run here, take the tackles in. And he was rolling and shooting. And I went to David after the game and I says, look, David, I'm sorry, I'm not going to play in that environment. Mm. I says, uh, I enjoy my football and I did enjoy that today. So David talked me out of uh, not doing that. And eventually I stayed. And to be fair, George McKenzie was magnificent in the way that he handled the tactics and everything. And it was a great learning process because one of the early games, I think there was maybe 5,000 in at Canvas Line. That was the first time I'd ever played in front of a crowd like that. Mm-hmm. And we won 3 1 against Johnson Borough in a League Cup. And uh, I scored one of the goals. And, and the feeling from the terrace was magnificent. And uh, they were a well run club, they did everything uh, properly. They got three or four good signings added to the group that they had. I played the trial for Kamarnock in November and signed a form for them and the proviso that if I was still in the Scottish Cup, I would stay with Camus Lang until I was out of the Scottish Cup. <laughs> Fortunately, we went right through to the final. So it was about another nine months before I actually signed full-time for Kamarnock. And that was after the the, the Cup final against uh, Kirk and Tiller Rob Roy. So it was a great 
learning process in the juniors. You had to learn how to handle yourself because some of the guys, and if you think of the tackles that you get ordered off for nowadays in mm. comparison to the tackles that used to happen in the 60s, it was especially the juniors. But great, uh, and they were a well-run club. I, I know they're fitting hard times now, but uh, I have the greatest respect. Joining in the summer of, of 1969, formally joining in that summer of 1969, were you surprised that you got your chance? Because effectively you were you were straight into the team the next season as a, as a first pick. Were you surprised it happened so quickly? Yes, I was. I mean, I used to train uh, one night a week at Kamana when I was playing with Canvas Lang. Uh, I used to get a bus after my work. I went straight from my work. I got a lift over to Hamilton. I got a bus from Hamilton to Straven and then I caught the Kamana bus from Straven and then I jogged round from there so as I was there in time. And then when I went full time, this was absolutely magnificent, you know, training during the day. I couldn't get enough of it. I thought... This was great. I'd always wanted to be a professional football player like any wee boy in Scotland. And here was my chance. We uh, had a couple of um, pre-season tours. We went down to to York and um, Wolverhampton. And uh, I was still in the boys' brigade at that time. And the annual BB camp went to Girvan. They were staying in tents just outside Girvan, just with the seashore. (laughs) I didn't expect to be going anywhere. And then they told me, you're going to York and Wolverhampton. Oh. So I, I had to go home and, and get my stuff and, and then come back to command the next day. And I, I came on against York and I, I scored against York and then we played against Wolverhampton. And then when I came back up, I didn't make my debut with the first team right away. I had a couple of reserve matches and then we were playing the Partick Thistle at home. I think that was my first game. And uh, I got in and fortunately I scored. I think I scored a couple of goals that day, and then thereafter I, I was I was a regular. It was quite quick. Um, I don't know whether it was because there was a good percentage of them from Lanarkshire. John Gilmore was from Hamilton. Tommy McLean was from Blackhall. So was Jim Jimmy Cook. Well, he wasn't quite Lanarkshire. He was uh, West Lothian, but they always met in Lan- uh, you know Hamilton and travelled down in the one car. So I think and Billy Dixon from Blackhall. I think that did help me. That there was people from Lanarkshire there that were, were able to. Let me settle in uh, quite quickly. Never found it intimidating. Uh, I thought it was great, and it was one lesson I learned. That any time that we had anyone come in uh, to train with us, or um, even if I was playing in the reserves and it was a trialist come in, I went out my way to speak to them. I went out my way to make them feel that they, there's a wee opportunity for them here. And and during the game, I would always try and encourage them because I, I and and my earlier things, you know with the juniors on the way back, going to a new team and if people don't speak to you and, and don't give you the ball, you know, it, it can be hard for you. You've got to then be a world beater when you're given the ball to demonstrate. But, but Kamara were very good at that, making you feel part of that. And, and that's something I tried to carry all the way through my sporting life, but not only my sporting life, my working life. In season 1969-1970, Ross Matthey scored 13 goals in his first 16 league games for the club. It made him very popular with his new Kilmarnock teammates. Yeah, maybe it was because they get the bonus, the only <laughs> bonus, because of that. Yeah, I suppose that, that, that does help settle you in as well if you're, if you're scoring. But um, as I said, the biggest accolade I can give is to Tommy McLean because what a crosser of a ball he was. I mean, even Eddie, would, Eddie Morrison would say that. Tommy used to say we were daft enough to go on the end of his, his crosses. <laughs> he would just put it into the box and we would go and attack it. Um, but no... I think it does help as well. I talk about the banter, any level of football, and it was good at Kamarna, and it's good at any club I've been at, and I think that's the important thing that carries you through the season as well, especially when things are not going too well. I had been there maybe a, a week, and I kept seeing the senior players like Frank BT and Andy King and these guys disappearing. I didn't know where they'd gone, but they were always out for the training, they were there. I'd got into the first team. And I think it was about a couple of games in, and I'd scored maybe three, four goals. And uh, this day I come in, and Frank Beatty says to me, Ross, come here. I said, well, What is it, Frank? He says, Come with me. And I thought, Club captain, what have I done? You know, I'm going through the tunnel. I'm saying, What have I done? Oh. So we're coming out, we turn right, we walk along, <laughs> and we go to the groundsman's house. And he opens it, What would you want? A cup of tea and a biscuit? So they had these digestive biscuits and tea, and there was guys like Andy King and Jack McGrory and Frank and sometimes Tommy McLean was in there and Jim McLean was in there and he would have a cup of tea and a biscuit before the training and that was my accolade I thought 
I've now been welcomed into the group because I get the opportunity to go to the groundsman's uh, house, as they called it, and get a cup of tea and a biscuit. And I knew I'd arrived okay. <laughs> struck up a very good partnership with Eddie Morrison, a famously good partnership with Eddie Morrison. Simple question, what made that partnership so successful? Uh, I, th I think we kind of complimented each other. To be fair, Eddie was one of these guys when the ball went into the box, he was like a battering ram. He, 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 he would put his head or his foot in places that sometimes he shouldn't have done. And I mean, the number of times he used to come off his nose bashed or a cut in his ear because he, he's dived at a ball and been kicked in the side of the head and all the rest of it. He was great to play alongside because he was one of these guys, he took the battering. And I was the one that kind of sniffed through the bottom. And I was always grateful for that, you know. And it used to say to me, see that broken nose I've got, that was your fault. You wouldn't go for those kind of things, you know. But uh, we just seemed, seemed to gel. And the fact that we were both reasonable in the air, and that gave Tommy McLean a choice, either me or Eddie, that he could find the ball. Sometimes one team has, a team has only got one guy who's reasonable in the air as a front player. We were fortunate to come out, uh, to come out there was the two of us, and that helped because we were getting crosses in from Jimmy Cook on one side. The majority came from Tommy and, and the opposite side. No, it was, it was great to play with because it, he, he could get, in those days, the, the centre-halves would kick me, and he took a massive battering for me on, on many occasions. The infamous moment, is it fair to say, at Somerset Park? when you maybe got a little bit more involved than you planned to? <laughs> this is one of these things that, uh, and I've said before, I wish I had a pound for every time someone said I was there. I would be a millionaire by this time. <laughs> I remember going to one of the games at, uh, at Somerset uh, as a supporter, and I'm walking down the road and I hear a group saying to me, I passed this group of guys, your supporters, and said, there he is. And I thought, oh no, what's coming? And I'd have an idea what's coming. Sometimes when you do that and uh, walk into a game and someone's, well, there he is. You feel as if your ego's going to be stroked by someone saying, ah, he scored that goal, etc. There's the man we hauled over the terrace. <laughs> and the number of times that uh, that's happened, uh, I've been at the game, I went for, there was about 18,000, I think, at the game that day. And uh, I went for a ball at the halfway line with Stan Quinn. And we were tussling with each other because it was our throw and I was trying to get it. And he was trying to keep me off it. And as I bent down, somebody grabbed my hair and hauled me into the terrace. And, and all hell broke loose. You know, players were diving into the terrace. And John Murphy, the late John Murphy there, who just passed away recently, he was in to, to protect me. And so was Stan Quinn. Uh, to be fair, I was quite glad those two went in because one or two of my commander colleagues stayed on the pitch and didn't help me <laughs> but they were in the terrace and helped me and, and, and I got over it it was after the game my dad said it's the funniest thing he's, he's up in the, the main stand and he saw the two is going for the wall and the next thing he just saw was my heels going over the wall and um, so at half time the police came round to me and said that they'd got this gentleman but he'd, he'd suffered some stroke and um, they were going to charge him and I said well there's no need to charge him I'm alright they said that uh, he'd been taken to hospital and uh, that was it. Now, years after it, it doesn't matter where I go in Ayrshire, somebody will say I was there. Now, the number of people have told me, I reckon that the highest attendance at Somerset was that day. There must have been about 250,000 people at that game. <laughs> must be a record attendance for an Air Commander game. Because everybody I talk, they talk to me in Ayrshire will say I was there that day. <laughs> you got hold over the terrace. And it was funny enough, I think about two weeks later, Johnny Graham, who played it here, was playing with Falkirk at one time. And the same thing happened to him. He got pulled into the terrace. And so there was, there was the two of us in the one season. And it's something that, you know, every so often there's a, a picture appears. Um, I've got them in my scrapbook. Somebody will text me and say, the Ayrshire Post is looking back 50 years and here's that picture again, you know. And I think the number of goals that I scored against there, nobody mentions that. They just mention the time I was hauled over the terrace. <laughs> but at least, at least they, they remember it. <laughs> Were they particularly bad, bad-tempered games? No, not really, uh, uh, to be honest with you. I, I mean, that's how I, I was at pains and the police were at pains and, and, and the air people were at pains to say that this was someone who took a turn. This wasn't uh, someone who took an umbrage to Stan and I having a tussle in the touchline or, or anything like that. It was just something that happened. There was just the usual banter between air and, and Kilmarnock because in those days there was no uh, segregation. 
you could go to anywhere in the terraces. Although, generally, what happened is that Kamara would go behind the railway end and then down that big uh, terrace opposite the main stand. And there was mixes of air and Kamara sports underneath the green enclosure uh, behind the goal. All the air fans used to sit, stand there, but they also stood down the side with the commander supporters. I know that doesn't happen nowadays, but in those days it did. One of the things about commander and air supporters, they all worked in Ayrshire. They all worked in the big, you know, the Johnny Walker's factory mm-hmm. or the, the big engineering company in the airs. So, so you'd be working beside a commander supporter or an air supporter. And there was always that banter during the week until, until the match. So I don't recollect, recollect any. I mean, there's a, obviously there's a few shouts and boos and things like that, which is which goes part and parcel of the game that's played when you're standing in the terrace. But I've never experienced that. I've experienced the rivalry how intense it was, but not to the stage that, you know, there was violence or anything like that. As discussed earlier in this series, the move towards part-time football had a profound impact on the destiny of the club. But what about the players themselves? There had been many occasions that the talk of going part-time had risen, but it had never come to fruition. And uh, then... We started, you know, losing players through injury and Tommy with the fact that he ended up going to to, to Rangers. One or two players retired. So it it was always going to be difficult. And more so, I think, when the decision was made to go uh, part-time. I remember at one stage, there was, I think, seven of us left full-time out on the main pitch behind the goals because there was a running track was round the, the... perimeter of the field at that stage and there was this grass bit behind the goal we always used to do our wee bits and pieces with the ball we were playing 4v3 there was seven of us left full time and John Murdoch the trainer he was in one of the teams to make it 4v4 and I get the call to go up to see the manager that was uh, he got a call from Dumbarton Alec Wright uh, asking if uh, I would sign for Dumbarton he says we've agreed a fee it's up to you and Dumbarton at that time were full time so um uh, I went to meet Alec and then I ended up going there but it, it was a hard thing I think for all these years that Kamarnock had been a successful team in the top division one of the problems as a player you don't know the true financial problems of the club but if you're going to compete at any level you have to be full time uh, without a doubt you can't expect guys to be holding down a job and leaving their office at 5 o'clock to come and play for you at 7 having been in the office since half past 7 in the morning <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's been very very difficult whereas the, the one thing that I found was great when I went full time I'd come from a, an engineering company that I did uh, two weeks day shift and one week night shift and uh, been able to uh, before games Midweek games, say it was a Wednesday, a midweek game. In the morning, I'd get up and my breakfast, I'd go for a wee walk round. And then in the afternoon, I'd go to my bed for an hour, as all the players did, the full time players mm-hmm. in those days. And then uh, reserve the energy for yourself when you went. Whereas when you were a part timer, you could be rushing from your work straight to, to wherever you were playing. It wasn't the best of preparations. But um, to be fair to Kamala, they came through that spell. Took them a wee while, certainly, but uh, I, I think it was a good learning process for them because I think the players who were part time then found that they could go full time. I think they, that, that experience was great for them, and, and, and I think that's why they've stayed full time uh, in the game so long. I think it's important you do that because you can't challenge teams like Rangers and Celtic and some of the other clubs who are further up the league than you uh, by being part time. In that final season, you did play again in a Scottish Cup semi-final against Celtic. It was a positive time playing-wise, but things maybe just weren't didn't feel quite the same. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that would be. I couldn't put my finger on it, but there certainly wasn't the same. I, I wouldn't say camaraderie. There wasn't the same feeling about the club as when I first arrived, because I I don't think there was there were the experienced players that. I had when I arrived, you know, the, the Jackie McGrory's, the Frank Beatties, the Andy Kings, the Jim McLean, and the Sandy McLaughlin's, the, and, and, and Tommy McLean, these guys were brilliant, you know, but I'm not saying that the guys that were in at that other period weren't brilliant, it was just, it was a different makeup of the team, and I, and, I, and I sometimes think there's a different mentality from a full-timer to a part-timer, that 
might have been one of the reasons why things didn't gel as well as they may have done. But it, it was that decision to go from full-time to part-time, I think. It wasn't a good thing for Kamara. But again, I wasn't privy to what the financial situation of the club was. So you have to accept that uh, there are people in positions that that's what they do. And uh, it has to be done that way. When I went to Dumbarton, we had, I think it was maybe 10 games to go before the end of the season. So uh, my first outing was supposed to be against Airdrie and of course the night before it was a snowstorm so uh, I remember my scrapbook, there's a picture of me with the barn strip on and I'm sitting in the goals with about three feet of snow and a ball up feet but on my feet I've got a pair of ice skates uh, and they, they said that I was ready for the game in any condition but that was delayed and they but when that game got played, I, I scored that night. I, I scored two that night, and I, I had a reasonable scoring with them in those ten games. We played, funny enough, we played Motherwell up Motherwell, and we won one nothing. And again, I scored the, the, the goal. And then there was the big one we were playing Kamara uh, on that day uh, down there, and there was a massive crowd there. And uh, as I say, I got the first goal, and I remember the. My teammates, they were all going bossy, but I, I just ran back to the middle of the park and left it at that. But when we when we won the game and I, I scored the second goal and I, I did a wee celebration at it, looking back at the time, I, I just felt it was it was relief more than anything else because I was playing with a team that had to win to stay in the league. And Kamana were playing a team that they had to win and stay in the league. And it, and it happened, it went, went our way. And then, of course... The last game of the season, we had Dundee United and Barton, and uh, Kamarnock had Falkirk at Kamarnock. And at halftime, when we went in, nobody told us what the score was from Rugby Park. And we, were, we ended up winning 4-2, uh, I think it was. And of course, there was a massive roar just about a couple of minutes to go. Falkirk had equalised in that. Somebody asked me after, how do you feel about Kamarnock? And I said, well, I'm really sad because I have a lot of good friends down there who don't deserve to be relegated. They were good to me. And, and and I must admit, the supporters were always good to me. I mean, there were other games that would say, you're a dumpling mafia, whatever the case may be. But in general, the supporters were very good. And I, I was genuinely sad, but at the end of the day, the, the team that were paying my wages were, were Dumbarton. Mm-hmm. And I had to play the best I could play for them. Ross Maffey has played a key role in the development of many of Scotland's top international players. I asked former national team manager Craig Brown to assess Ross Maffey the coach. I can't speak highly enough of Maffey. I'll tell you how highly I thought of him was. I was at the job as the manager Clyde authorised me to run the reserve team. When I went, Billy McNeil left me with a great squad, but there was only 18 players. It was quite a hard shift. That was the second division we were in. So I got the chairman to allow me to have a young reserve team. And I thought, I need somebody to take the reserve team. And Ross Matthew was the coach of Shots Bonacourt. And I had known Ross as a player. I'd seen him. And uh, I phoned him and said, would you mind? Would you like to come to work at Clyde? Well, he came to coach at Clyde and uh, his coaching of the players, not just the young players, the first team as well, was exceptional. I'm not wanting a goal star here, but Andy Roxford was saying to me, you know, I've got this huge team and I've got, we're bringing an under-16 team and an under-17. He says, I need help at the SFA. He says, you know, I've I says, i got the very best, but if you, if I recommend them, I'm losing them. At Clyde, I recommended Ross to Andy Roxford and uh, away he went. He got a full-time job with the SFA and he's never, <laughs> he never looked back. And Andy said, this was a, a wonderful appointment I made. I took my coaching uh, certificate when I was playing at Kamana. I had two ambitions in, in the world, and one was in my life. One was to be a football player, which I achieved to play at professional level, and one was to be a coach, and I achieved both. I've been very privileged to be able to say that, that I've, uh, two of my ambitions were that, and I've achieved them. I remember the time we Kamara played Falkirk at Falkirk, and I had already sat my badges, and I, I got word through from the SFA that I'd passed and here was my certificate but it had been sent to Kamara Football Club and I had gone straight to Falkirk because I stayed in Motherwell and I met the team at Falkirk and Walter McRae came in and he says and he handed it to me and he says um, I think you should take the team today and of course I didn't know what he was talking about so I opened it up and of course he'd been told it had been 
my certificate. So that's how it started. I, I got my certificate and then um, I was always interested in doing bits and pieces. And at the end of, uh, when I went to um, uh, Falkirk, I was asked to go, no, sorry, when I left Dumbarton, I, I got the opportunity to go to my hometown team, Motherwell, because Craig Brown was the reserve team manager. And he said, could you come and do a wee bit of coaching with the reserves, but playing the reserves. So I was delighted because I only stayed, our house was only 10 minutes from third part. So I went there and I was doing, I was part-time. And so I, I did that. I played in the reserves, I coached. Then I got the opportunity to go to Berwick because we'd just been married and it was too good an offer financially for me. I went to Berwick and I was there a season and then I finished up and I came back and Falker asked me to go. So I was with Falker and I did some coaching. Then I got the opportunity to go back junior. I, I left Falker, went back junior to Shorts Bonacord. Accord. And when I was with Shorts Bonacord, Accord, Craig phoned and said, would you come to Clyde? So I ended up as coach at Clyde. And then one day he spoke to me, he says, uh, Andy Roxborough, I work with you. I said, what was it about? He says, I'll just go and see him. So it was Craig that had recommended me to Andy and, and I ended up starting there. And what I can say, I had a privileged 30 years working with the SFA, the most magnificent journey ever. I've been able to go to World Cups, European Championships, been able to work with some of the best young players that Scotland has produced and actually get paid to do my hobby. And there's no better job than that if you get paid to do your hobby. Pat Heaven was one. Uh, he was absolutely, and Pat was at Clyde when I was there. And uh, it was very interesting just recently because of the lockdown. Uh, I've been delving into all my old programs. I've been collating them and putting them in boxes and, and clubs and so on and so forth. The funny thing, the, the Clyde ones, I came across one. And sometimes when you do something like that, you end up spending half the day reading them. And I was reading about, and it was one that Pat Nevin had written, and he'd written something very, very complimentary about me, that uh, I, I was a, a coach who spent time talking, showing him, and he was forever grateful. Now, Pat had a magnificent career, yet it showed me the quality of the guy you were dealing with to do that. I mean, that's something that very, very few people do nowadays, is look back and say, see if it hadn't been for X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have been here. There's been a number of players like that, and it's very, very humbling that they take the time to say a few words like that. I've always firmly believed, Gordon, that when you're you're in football and you're dealing with, especially when you're dealing with young players, you're dealing with the football player and you're dealing with the person. You've not only got to teach them football skills and how to develop those, you've also got to teach them life skills. Anytime we would go with our youth team and we met at the hotel for the first night, whether we were flying out or whether we were staying in Scotland and playing a game, I would sit and talk to them and I would say that, first of all, you've got to remember who you're representing, and that's your country. And secondly, you're representing your club. Thirdly, you're representing your mum and dad. And more importantly, you're representing yourself. Now, don't do anything that would tarnish that. I says, now, even if we were flying in an aircraft, I would say, remember, see the old lady that maybe be sitting next to you. She's somebody's granny. Hands up anybody who would swear in front of their granny. Not a hand would go up. I said, so you respect that. I said, and I don't want you to be roaring and shouting in planes or, you know, doing things in hotels, trashing rooms and everything. I says, because if you do that, you're out the team. You will never play an international match with me again. Now, at the end of the day, I still firmly believe that life skills have to be taught to sports sportsmen. There's nothing mamby-pamby about saying to a waitress who puts your suit down at the table, thank you. And the number of times I've come off a plane, Gordon, and I'm, I'm saying I hope everybody was OK, because the boys are maybe been spread about. And I've gone out and I'm walking down the concourse with a member of staff and this woman will say, or this guy will say, are you in charge of that group? I'm thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? He said, could I compliment you? I says, what about? He says, behaviour's impeccable. He says, they actually, they were sitting talking to us. We've been in planes with groups before and they've caused mayhem. He says, they're a credit to their country. Now, at the end of the day, you try to be a credit to your country by winning games as well. Now, if you can ally the two, but I still maintain that uh, there's life skills that can be complemented by football skills. That's my philosophy anyway, and I know some people in the past have said, no, you've got to grab them by the throat mm. and kick them up my backside and all the rest of it. I, I think over the years, Gordon, I probably, one of my staff members said, I've only seen you clear your throat about half a dozen times, because uh, I don't think there's any 
uh, any point and going into a dressing room, slamming a door and roaring and shouting at people because, first of all, the person you're, or the group you're roaring and shouting to switch off. They don't listen to you because you're going absolutely ballistic and you're not being reasonable and logical in what you say. I would rather sit down and say this, that, the next thing. Can you do this, that, the next thing? But occasionally you have to clear her throat. And the reason for that is because I keep saying to people, don't ever mistake kindness for softness. And I think that, that that's, might be my philosophy. You cannot help but like the game of football all the more having spoken with Ross Maffey a true enthusiast and a wonderful ambassador. Averaging a goal every other game in the top flight for Kilmarnock, he must surely be regarded as one of the great Kelly strikers. Thank you to Ross for spending the time with me. The Kelly Histories Big Match series is made by Right Half Communications, in partnership with Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association and the Kelly Trust. Find out more at www.righthalf.co.uk and follow the series on Twitter, at Killy Histories. As always, thank you to Paul Clark for his assistance in setting up this interview, to the Kilmarnock FC historian John Livingston, and to scottholmesmusic.com for the theme music, Clear Progress, which is used under free Creative Commons license. In this week's episode, we heard from, or are about to hear from, Scottish football icon Craig Brown and Kilmarnock FC legend Jimmy Cook, Huge thanks to both of them, and there is more to come. Drop us a line at killahistories at gmail.com if there is a player you would like to hear more from. As this series is working in partnership with the Former Players Association, you never know who will be guesting soon. And, if you like the series, please do spread the word. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time. Ross was a finisher, a six-yard box finisher. We knew exactly where Ross would be. I didn't even look up. Ross was just an expert, uh, an absolute genius at turning and shooting and getting a goal. Whether it's scrambled over or rocketed in, he always managed to get a goal. Ross was very supportive of the team that he was playing in, very aware of the team that he was playing in and what was expected of him. And what was expected of him, he gave more. He won his guts out, tracking back, going right back to his own 18-yard balls, chasing somebody that had got past him or so on. Just overall, you would describe him as the perfect finisher. It was the, it was the Harry Kane of his time. A nicer fella you couldn't get. He is a lovely, lovely guy. We were great friends. We still are great friends. Frankly, I've got Ross to thank an awful lot for because he converted what I made. And this motto, where Kelly till we die. And that's the thing I've found since I got involved with Commander all those years ago. I will be. Even if we're playing Motherwell and we score, I'm up my feet. If Motherwell score, I'm saying, well, that was never a goal. I still sit. <laughs> I don't want a draw between Motherwell and Kamara. I want to win it. <laughs>